Welcome to the big picture with your host, Harrison Newton. Hit the subscribe and share the word. Welcome back to the show, everyone, and welcome back, Mark. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Mark was one of the original guests that we had on the show, one of the, like, Nick Arbuckle, your second episode? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. second or third. Mark's a bit of a economy and business guru. Last time we spoke was during that lockdown over a, a call, actually, and in that current situation, it was actually madness looking back. It really was, like, no one really knew what was happening, right? Oh, totally. There was so little information about the virus. And for us, as people who trade shares, the market dropped 40% over what was, what, about a month? Yeah, yeah. It was some pretty crazy times. <laughs> <laughs> I think for us as well, like, you always hear about, you know, the market cycles. And since pretty much, what, 2008, 2009, the GFC, the markets have been so strong. So it was kind of crazy going through that period of uh, volatility. Oh, yeah, because there was 10 years of growth. Yeah, so like neither, neither you or nor I had ever kind of experienced that level of volatility before. So it's pretty interesting kind I, of navigating our way through it. Do you know what was interesting was the fact that it happened so quickly. So even in the GFC, it mm. took a year or so for the share prices to drop that much. Where during COVID, it happened pretty much in a month. And for anyone who trades in shares, it was a crazy time. Mm. Because if your shares drop 20%, do you sell or Mm. do you hold? Because Mm. they might drop another 20% or they might go up. Mm. So we were both caught up in that madness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's kind of the, the markets were reflective of what everyone in everyday life was thinking. Like we didn't really know much about the virus, didn't know much about how it spread but we knew that it spread rapidly and that it uh, impacted you know certain cohort of the population so i think that was pretty crazy times and probably helps explain why the market kind of sold off so rapidly but i mean it was like one of the things that we spoke about on the podcast last time is like we kind of saw it coming it happened in china in january but it didn't take the markets until like march to kind of react to it and that's probably a western view where you know you think these things happen in a faraway place that won't impact you, but then when they do impact you, it, it, it hits pretty hard. And I think even now you like look at you know anything in popular culture and there's people wearing masks, and social distancing and stuff that, you know, if you had gone back in a time machine, you know, eight months ago, back to 2019, that no one would believe you that, you know, the president in the United States is a walking COVID <laughs> hero. <laughs> yeah, he's like literally toxic. Like he's got... <laughs> He's got this deadly disease seeping out of him while he's in the Oval Office. And I think they've up to like 40 cases now in the White House. So it's it's pretty incredible to kind of see it unravel. Well, to the fact that it even gets to the White House. If you think about it as a war, the fact that it's in the White House, that's the top of the globe pretty much. That's the top institute. Well, yeah, and it kind of put one of, one of my theories to bed because... My understanding was, okay, yeah, a vaccine is a long way away. You know, at the time we were talking, we were saying that, you know, potentially could take four years for a vaccine to be, A, developed, go through the testing, and then also go through the production process to immunize the world's population. 
but i think one of the things that put to bed was that you can't rely on testing because that's what that's whole trump's whole defense was was that everyone around him gets tested so quickly he gets tested regularly you know it's a 15 minute test for him but even with that procedure in place people still got infected and then when they got infected it became this like super spreader event which is like pretty much taken out like the upper echelons of the u.s white house wow do you think he's politicized it though because for him the fact that he's he's probably he's almost coked up he's on all sorts of drugs at the moment (laughs) feeling great about life but you know especially with that republican cohort who already questioned the validity of the virus it almost watching him Mm. get through it he's almost come out as a hero to them yeah well i suppose there's like kind of two ways he could he could take it there's like one way where he could be like boris johnson who and i think this was after we spoke last time he ended up getting it and you know there's videos of him being up there on like the press lectern saying that he's going around in the hospital shaking hands with everybody and like he's next to his secretary of health who's like shaking his head and going no you should not be doing that but anyway so he got it he got hit pretty hard and probably earlier in the year when we didn't really know much about it and he was you know probably pretty close to death and he managed to come out of that and you know he got a lot more support from the uk public and he's he said you know i've gone through covid and these little learnings and he, he tried to kind of change the course of of his public policy but trump has just kind of doubled down on his policy of not wearing a mask and not really letting covid dominate your life i think is the direct quote that he said so he didn't really have the option to 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 change course because he doesn't want to look weak to his base exactly yeah so he's just doubled down on it and now he's actively got it and he's in the oval office and no one wants to work with him because why would you if it's if wow. someone's if your boss has actively got a disease that could so kill you. So he's still contacting people there in yeah. the office that don't have COVID and he's expecting them to show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's uh, in the Oval Office, that's where, you know, they, they do that's Isn't where he that does almost it. like intentional if he gets in contact with someone who he passes it to and then they die, is that almost third degree murder or I mean it surely it's not far off, right? Like, if you're actively aware you have it, if you know it's deadly, mm. it's irresponsible. Well, I mean, there's, I like, there's been cases, um, like, even in New Zealand, where people are HIV positive and don't disclaim that to their partner, uh, and then the partner catches it. Yeah, that's kind of it's criminal, criminal negligence, yeah. It's incredible, way. Eh? Mm. But there he is, driving around in the car. You, know, <laughs> you see the close-up of the guy driving the car, and he's, like, hermetically sealed in this car. So he's like the oh, guy the driving it is like blowing yeah, yeah. he's got like this mask with like a small vent in it. I'm like, dude, you're 100 percent getting COVID. Like, <laughs> wow. but, but yeah, I don't it, know. But I think you're right. He's kind of politicized that he's sort of playing himself to be this hero that he's kind of went to hospital for three days and he flew back in a helicopter. And like, I suppose that's how his base views it. But like, how the rest of the world views it is this guy got infected. He got the best possible care you could ever get, you know. That's not available to any other yeah, American. That's it. Not, no not even a billionaire could get that same level of care that he got, which is understandable because he's the president of the United States. He's going to get the best care. But then, yeah, and then he... I reckon all these drugs that have got him wired up wear off and he ends up going back to hospital. I reckon that's best case scenario for the world. It would have been like a really poetic end 
this is gonna sound bad, but if he ended up dying from it, mm. it would have been this beautiful poetic end to about five years of this turmoil. Turmoil. Yeah. You know, it would just be like, wow. Mm. Maybe it was a wake up lesson, but no, no, we're back to square one. <laughs> <laughs> That's. A, I find the whole thing pretty fascinating to watch, and like, yeah, obviously, I, I don't live in the United States, or I've, I've visited it there a few times, but. Yeah, it's just crazy to see the whole thing play out. And, like, I think the interesting thing, too, is, like, as they go through this election, you know, a couple of weeks away from election day, only, like, 50%, or I think in 2016, 55% of the voters actually turned out. Yeah. So it's incredible that this, like, event that had so much focus from the world and from even, like, US media, only, like, 55% of the people bothered to show up in the polls. Oh, Doesn't yeah. That blow man. your mind? Do you think they're just disengaged or is it... That's it. So people are either so disengaged or like so unmotivated by the whole thing that they just don't even turn up. So it really makes you wonder if like that whole political system needs enough people. It's interesting when people talk about what needs to change in America to get it it working again and Mm. get the policies through. It's not one policy or the other. It's the the system's broken. Mm. So you got that tri... Like, I remember learning this in geography. It's a real weird setup where you got a Senate, a Congress, a President, a Supreme Court, and you got all these levels of bureaucracy. You only have two parties. You can only vote Democrat or Republican, so Mm. there's no opportunity for a third perspective or Mm. a fourth perspective. Mm. And then it's been so polarized that I'm like you. I feel like it's a a system issue. Mm. And for America to get back on track, I almost reckon they got to burn up the Bill of Rights <laughs> as a starting spot. Yeah. Fuck that. Who who decided a law two hundred years ago would be relevant today? Yeah. Who decided that a Supreme Court justice who hits the nineties is still in the cognitive state yeah. to make a decision? Yeah. It's That's interesting. Fucked. Like yeah. the whole America is the only Western country in the world with a no term limit for the Supreme Court. It's it's crazy. So I, I suppose the question I have for you is, in comparison, how how do you find MMP, particularly as we kind of come up to our own elections? Yeah, that's a good point, eh? Yeah. Do you think that's a better system? Oh, because like, I think everyone everyone thinks it's better, don't they? Well. Yeah, it's sort I, of. Like I, a, I agree. I, I think it's interesting because you give smaller parties more control, but then now we've got this weird system where people are trying to vote tactically. You know, like, oh, if I vote for Greens in my electorate, then maybe Labour won't get enough votes, so they will have to go into a cult. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it becomes this like game and shit. Well, that's no. Nah, I I do agree with you on that actually, because that's been my struggle. The elections ten days out. And I still Have haven't found a party to vote for oh. because I'm like you, like one of the parties I would like to vote for. And this is an interesting thing about MMP mm. is the the Opportunities Party top. Yeah. Like great, you know, um, wealth tax, yeah, really good environmental stuff. But there's a threshold in MMP where you need either to win an electric like ACT does. Yeah. So David Seymour's only survived because of the right wing Epsom. Um, Which I think we're currently sitting in. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he is he, he is a personable guy. I've actually seen him at the bars. Just he's up to chat to anyone. Oh, he's right. like 
one of those adorable sort of dorky dudes. Right. You know, like he just breaks through his dorkiness. Yeah. But anyway, you can either win an electric and bring in as many people as you want, or you need 5% of the vote, which is ridiculously high. Yeah. So realistically, in New Zealand, we got New Zealand First, Greens, Labour, National, and Act to vote mm. for. And if you look at the the way that polls are kind of showing the election to go, it's going to be a Labour, whether or not they get a majority to rule on their own, but Labour, Greens, National, and Act. Yeah. You know, New Zealand First is looking like it's on the way out, and the rest of the parties are too small. So by that definition, doesn't that mean that the New Zealand public doesn't really want MMP? They don't really want those small parties but i think it's more about their inability to get their voice out yeah they had a minor leaders debate and the reason why i feel like this is a good discussion Mm. is because what we've seen with labor and national is they're both so center at the moment that you can really struggle to see the difference between the two parties yeah and it comes down to like almost like a vote of personality like do you vote for judith the crusher collins or do you vote for Jacinda. The care, the kind carer. Yeah, who you look at her when she's addressing the country, you know, she's dealt with a lot of stuff. So she's dealt with the Christchurch terrorist attack. She's dealt with COVID and she's handled that really well and been able to articulate her point really well. And then you look across at National and there's just been like absolute uh, chaos within that party, you know, that. The backstabbing. Yeah, the backstabbing and like, I feel like Kiwis kind of get, you know, after living in Australia, when I was living in Australia, they had gone, I'd been there for like five years and they'd gone through like, I can't remember what the number is, but I felt like close to three or four mm. prime ministers in that time. They're like Julia Gillard and then they're Kevin Rudd and then Kevin Rudd, Tony Abbott and then Tony Abbott was overtaken by um, Scott Alex, Tur- uh, sorry, not Alex Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull. And then um, finally Scott Morrison rolled Turnbull. It's like all this backstabbing, you know, it's like, that's not very... New it's Zealand. Not, yeah, it's not a Kiwi way. That's know. the Aussie way. Yeah, yeah. We're like having Helen Clark for however, you know, how long was she? Nine in years. Yeah, nine years. And then we had John Key for like similar. Oh, was of... it six years or nine years? No, that's where it's real interesting because I re- remember this sort of political strategist because what's actually come out is every party does market sensing. So they'll, they'll send a survey out to a thousand people and work out what the public think. But the main thing that wins elections is personality. Mm. So that's why I don't reckon many people could read a policy out that they know of either national or labor. Mm. And what you see on those billboards is just Jacinda or the crusher. Yeah. (laughs) And what's interesting, I read this really cool book. I think it was The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Get Divided by Politics. Mm. And essentially our own sort of trait personality traits sort of dictates who we're going to vote for so if you are high in empathy Mm. you'll vote for someone like Jacinda Ardern or if you're high in industrialness which sort of means like pick your boots up you need to earn it you're going to vote for the crusher and we can pretty much see identically the personalities that represent the left and right even though they both basically have the same policies wow that's interesting oh it was a fascinating book because it really broke down what from a genetic perspective um because it gets a bit complex but they reckon there's five personality traits yeah and um the left votes on sort of that caring stuff but the one that stuck out was actually what made people vote for the right Mm. 
and that was the disgust mechanism. So essentially, yeah. the right believes in borders sort of thing. So it sort of believes in fences and a whole bunch of that is keeping the bad out and the good in. So they're really fragile to new sort of invaders. So yeah. Immigrants and etc. Exactly, but they also have a higher disgust response in terms of like table cleanliness and, oh, wow. and stuff like that. So it was really interesting, the different triggers from voters. And that's where, that's the scary thing about politics. It's a personality race, mm. you know? And I suppose, like, to that point, it shows the effectiveness of, like, Cambridge Analytica. When you have access to that sort of level of data, you can oh. separate people into cohorts. You can do A and B testing to work out what ads they would respond to and then mm. you can be super targeted with your your marketing oh so, yeah. it's crazy and that's the freaky thing when you talk to a boomer they don't say i hate jacinda because of this policy it's i hate jacinda because she's too kind blah 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 you know yeah. like when you actually talk to people they talk about why they don't like a party based on the personality mm, that's interesting and i think too is like uh, and this is just from my own personal experiences you know People will hear things on if it's like news talks ZB and Mike Hosking sort of Mike Hosking's yeah, crack yeah <laughs> rattling off some stuff and you know they come back and they repeat it verbatim because they've you know heard it on the radio yeah oh totally yeah that's interesting and it's actually really cool man because the first episode I actually talked about this if you want to build something or do something you just need to do it and then make it better so obviously um last time we talked we were in a lockdown over covid and it was pretty awful it was a skype chat <laughs> <laughs> pretty impressed with the setup you've got now so we've gone from doing a, a skype call where um i think my headphones didn't work for like <laughs> the first half an hour and i was kind of yelling into the into the screen but now you've got this full setup you've got microphones it's all looking pretty profe- professional Oh, it's incredible. And that's what's been good because when I started, I just did it Mm. and it was definitely not perfect, you know? And that's where, but it was good. Like, all you need is a few people like yourself who sort of encourage you and give recommendations about how to make it better. And it's been great. Like, I feel bad for the people who watched those first three episodes and were put off by the, you know... Just as I found my own way. But yeah. if I didn't start in that space and I was waiting for it to be perfect, I don't think, you know. Yeah, like definitely. I, I think like if you spoke to anyone who starts anything and they look back at their early days, they'll probably have a few laughs at, at certain things. Oh, it's cringeworthy. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you received much feedback? Yeah, nah, it's been going real well. So obviously just been working on it, learned how to edit for those people interested, just started an Instagram page. Uh, just look up What's the, the handle, the big picture NZ, and obviously you can still contact us at contact dot the big picture NZ at gmail dot com. So, like your question said, it's actually been going pretty well, eh? So I've been really happy with it. Not only the learnings, but we've actually seen the community growing. Good. So we've got about eighty listeners an episode now. And I think for I feel the- pressure now. <laughs> There's 80 people listening to this. <laughs> nah, it's it's been interesting because first of all, it's not about that. Like I've always just been happy with 30 because if you're speaking to a classroom, that's pretty cool, mm. you know. But for me, the real thing that I've enjoyed is just 
having the conversations with people who listened and today a friend actually repeated back about art investing to me without knowing that he picked up that information (laughs) so that's good actually a massive milestone for me just got the first email from a not a stranger a a big picture thinker yeah (laughs) is that what the community scored i like it uh i'll have to think of a better community (laughs) name big pictoids (laughs) is that a word pictoids It was pretty cool, man. What did the pictoid have to say? (laughs) First of all, I was pretty impressed. It's a a well-worded, with full stops, email. Not abusive. Just sort of said they came across the podcast, enjoyed it. Just enjoyed hearing a fellow Kiwi talk about what they, and what they currently think about. Mm. Sort of kept the encourage up about keep making episodes and and to tell their friends to tune in. Guess for me, man, that 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 made me feel good for days, eh? Mm. Like, it actually encouraged me. When I read that email, I did six hours of work on the podcast, and it was the fact that I reached someone I didn't know was was such a motivating factor. Yeah, and awesome, it, man. it gets back to that tall poppy syndrome that we talked about. That one little encouragement mm. spurred me on for a week's worth of work, you know? Yeah, yeah, for and sure. A week's more of improvement, you know? And I think that's probably like a... Yeah, they touch on a good point where it's like you're giving good, honest Kiwi perspectives in a space where, you know, you listen. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but most of it's all kind of US-based. So it's nice to, to hear, you know, someone talk about New Zealand issues, whether that be political, talking about the economy, that sort of stuff. So Totally, yeah. man. Because that was the whole point. First of all, we're fed just an American narrative of the world and American culture just gets fed to us. Mm. So we're actually losing our identity a bit, I reckon. But also, Kiwi stereotypes. We always play dumb. As a culture, it's cool to be dumb. And that was one thing I was sort of got sick of, because Sasha, the, the person who sent that... The pictoid. The pictoid. <laughs> <laughs> we do talk deep, yeah, but we don't talk openly about it. It's mm. always behind closed doors and... DNM, I think it's called, right? Deep and meaningful, yeah. yeah, yeah. Usually it's at like 3 a.m. Pissed yeah, as fuck. Pissed as. That's the problem in New Zealand. <laughs> they wait till 3 a.m. until it. It's amazing, especially the ones who don't talk very openly. They're the ones who need those 3, 3 a.m.s. I never yeah. never really find that. No, that's what's been cool about it, man. And I'm actually loving it. Just about the creativity behind it. Yeah, that's the thing. I I, I think just as a fellow uh, pictoid, <laughs> and obviously, as you mentioned, kind of being following your success in the not po- success, mate. No, no. But it's been awesome to see Good. you do it. And like, I remember when you called me up to get you on the show, and you're like, you know, this is like episode two, and you hadn't really got anything sorted. But you're like, just come on, we just got to do it, and like, we'll figure it out as we kind of go through the process. And then, as you kind of as a as a listener, and you listening every every week, or you know. Maybe Maybe it's a little less than a week because obviously bi-week. You're... <laughs> yeah. the new one's going to be bi-weekly. Yeah. Well, you've got you've got a day job and all that sort of stuff, so you obviously can't have them out every day or whatever. But it's been cool seeing the progress in, in the podcast and the production quality, and then also I think the the way you've structured the podcast too has improved. Exactly, and that's all feedback, man. And there's a lot of trial and error. It was very vulnerable to put yourself out there a bit. Yeah, one's marketing. That's been pretty pretty interesting one to do. 
it's a good time to plug if you haven't already just subscribe <laughs> or if you're a marketer looking for a, a great medium with an engaged audience uh hit up yeah. hit up harrison for maybe some some sponsorship opportunities oh no we'll we'll keep that one let's out. monetize this thing <laughs> <laughs> nah nah speaking of um monetizing i think last time we spoke we were kind of going through the free fall of covid it was when was it? i think it was may april end of april oh, oh was it was april okay so yeah that was sort of peak corona panic season <laughs> and i think one of the interesting things for us we were kind of talking through what what sort of recovery if there was even going to be one was going to happen and probably now we've got a little bit of hindsight so it's kind of interesting to catch up with you and sort of talk that through so man i totally agree and what i think we also forget now we had no idea what it was how deadly it was all we knew is that every border was shutting down and the globe was shutting down yeah I was freaked, man. Yeah. Like, you don't know how much it's actually in New Zealand because of the delay of getting it. And I think it, it was apocalyptic. It really was. I think so, too. And I, I think, yeah, you, you talk about an interesting thing where it's like the borders were shutting down. And, you know, we live in this, like, globalized society where you think that you need to have inter- international trade. And obviously the trade sort of continued, but you, you think that you need to have those open borders for society to continue. But here we are now. What are we like? Month six into this? Eight, seven, seven. Oh, Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Edit that out. Future. <laughs> well, and here we are who, now in month eight. Time. <laughs> who knows time? But, you know. Okay. So what is it now? It's October now. Oh, we need March, to do the calculation. Yeah, so yeah. yes, and March all sort of six kicked months. Up, so it's like six to seven months. Six <laughs> to seven months now, and life goes on. You know, the economy contracted, I think, during the lockdown, it contracted by like 12%, GDP contracted 12%, which is like the largest I've ever recorded, which is yeah, obviously very bad. And there's probably, I say life goes on, there's probably many people that are in much worse financial positions now or potentially have lost their jobs. So, I mean, surely they're impacted, but the whole world doesn't end like we thought it was back no, in April. I think... The average person and what the um, the share market showing us, what the GDP showing us is we're back to normal, mm. basically. The GDP might be down 1% or 2%, you know, mm. but it was so incredible how how fast it dropped and how quick it right, rose again, you know? Well, yeah, and I think that it kind of depends on what you're looking at too. I think there was like a massive shift in the market and a reallocation in the market because of COVID. So you look at like the S&P 500, which is a selection of some of the top 500 companies in the US. And since COVID hit, they're actually at, you know, record levels. Nice. But the when you look, so it's 500 companies, but the majority of those gains have been in the top 10 of all of which are technology companies. Mm-hmm. So you've seen like big box retailers like Macy's, etc., go down while online retailers like Amazon have gone through the roof. So well, Apple reached $2 trillion, up from $1 trillion a few months ago. It's crazy, isn't it? So you're seeing this massive reallocation of money to these tech companies that have just boomed. Yeah, and it's actually really interesting the fact that the stock market's actually recovered because one of the big drivers of that, they think, is that because interest rates are so low, so if you go to a bank, you get 
not even a percent anymore, so you can't even keep up with inflation, that there's nothing else to invest in at the moment besides stocks. And I think that's something that we talked about in the last show is that like our generation or the generation even younger than us have are now in a situation where so like the the normal process would be oh sorry you go to high school you go to university you get a job you save you buy your first house uh, you know have a baby etc cetera, etc cetera. but for our generation now you know if you're saving money and just putting it into a term deposit you're getting one two percent you're not going to get a house deposit no you're not so you're not going to get that baby yeah so and- now we're you have to look elsewhere and and our generation is looking at the stock market and potentially is a big part of this rise in these tech firms is that companies like Robinhood, which help millennial and generation Y investors invest in the market because there's no, you don't have to spend $5,000, $10,000, $15,000. You can buy a fractional part of a share. So you can spend, you know, a hundred bucks or whatever spare change you have. And these millennial investors are investing in stocks they know. So they know Apple, they, you know, they have an iPhone. Oh. They're investing in Amazon because that's where they buy all of their, you know, consumables. So that's where the, there's been a real surge in these what they call Robin Hood stocks. And um, that's because they're all stocks like Tesla. Tesla's probably a good example at the Tesla's moment. Tesla's the best example. Yeah. At the moment, it's number one car company by value of market capitalization in the world. And it, you know, it produces a fraction of the cars that Toyota or Volkswagen do. But yeah. that's because the, there's a whole bunch of factors, but I think a big part of that too is that retail investor who's sort of looking to the future and, you know, can invest now with $100, $200, 300 Oh, totally. It's been really interesting with my friends. Essentially, back in the boomers' day, um, like you said, you would save and then buy a house. And then once you've bought the house, then... Later in life, you'll get a share portfolio. Mm. But talking to my friends, because I've been doing shares the last 16 years, and uh, sorry, last 10 years, and you've been doing them a while now. Yeah. But I've never heard so many of my friends talk about it. And essentially, I think it comes down to the fact that if any of us are going to buy a house, you can't save, you need to invest, and you need that money to double yeah to get on that's it like if you look at in auckland house prices in auckland you know the the medium house price is getting close to a million dollars yeah and the reserve bank has restrictions which they adjusted during covid because obviously the people's incomes have been impacted and house prices are so important to the the new zealand economy that they needed to keep fueling the, the house prices but usually the the minimum amount you can have for a deposit needs to be 20 percent of the house value to go on that traditional approach where you finish university, get a job, save, buy a house, you need a $200,000 deposit. Holy anyway. shit. And get out of your student debt as well. Well, that's it. Yeah. So you're coming out of you're coming out of university with student debt. You're trying to pay that off. Then you're also trying to save up for a house. $200,000 do- <laughs> $200, deposit that you need to sort of rummage together. And then you're trying to stay away from credit. Sorry, credit cards. So, yeah, it's an interesting environment now. Shift. Yeah. No, and that's exactly it. Because that's what's really presented itself, especially over COVID. The fact that I know with my friends, it's it's really brought to the front is that shit, better get investing and, and saving. Because the other side of that is, you know, all us millennials who grew up 
we grew up during a recession and what we saw with our parents is boomer uh, generation they really loved debt and they really took on a lot of debt and they all got visa cards with high interest repayments and what we're seeing with those millennials is because we grew up in a recession we don't have that appetite for debt so it's been really interesting to watch no one get credit cards mm. this is where it's cool because you were originally a, a first investor in afterpay which is essentially the modernization of the credit card mm. do you want to sort of describe that a bit further yeah sure i mean i wish i was an original investor i think they they listed on the asx at close to a dollar and I think today, share your share your story <laughs> and then get into it. I mean, it's one of those things that I invested in based on my own personal experience, and like, yeah, as you said, you you know, you know, your friends and family that are around your age, and and the adverse relationship that we've had with credit cards. I think that was one of the things that kind of came out of the GFC was that you know people were over leveraged, and um, when things turn pear shape, then yeah, they get hit hard. So you're always told by your parents and your your elders never to get into debt. And so I think that's something that's probably been ingrained in the millennial. Oh, yeah. Afterpay has come along and they've kind of provided this way so you can, it's called buy now, pay later. So you get the instant gratification of the product, but then you end up paying for it over, you know. Four installments. Four installments. But, I mean, you look at the market now on the ASX and there's probably close to like 30 of these. So there's not a huge moat in terms of coming up with a buy now, pay later scheme. scheme. But yeah, the, the story that you're kind of talking to is there was some panic selling that kind of happened after <laughs> after COVID hit and everyone sort of panicked and said, hey, you know, this is probably impacting millennials and generation Y the most because... When you look at the industries that were essentially shut down, like retail and hospitality, etc., they're, they're the ones that kind of hire and employ um, people uh-huh. in that age group. So there was obviously concern about what's going to happen to these people when they just get fired, and the share price plummeted. So it went from I think it was close to forty dollars, went all the way down to to nine bucks. So if you had bought at nine dollars, you'd be doing probably all right. A thousand percent, essentially. <laughs> yeah, you'd be doing really good. So I mean, that's a, probably a case of you know people panicking without any sort of real information from the company coming out. But then obviously we've had we've had a lot of government stimulus, you know, and they've come out and in Australia they've got Job Keeper and in New Zealand. They had the um, wage subsidy program. So there was all these stimulus packages that were put in place that essentially meant that a lot of these people could keep their jobs. And then so Afterpay had both the the dramatic fall, but then also the um, the dramatic big rise. the big rise. So yeah, if you were if you were still holding it today and you'd bought it at nine dollars and it's now at like eighty six dollars, you'd be you'd be pretty happy. Yeah, that's nine hundred percent return. I think. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's pretty good. Nine hundred and fifty percent. But you could basically yeah. retire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends on how how big you went when it went down. But yeah, I mean, and that's the thing that I think we were talking about. You got to be careful, and when when things are kind of plummeting, you can either panic sell like everyone else, or you can hold. But the problem if you hold and it keeps selling, and then eventually it goes bankrupt, then you know you're worse off too. Oh, totally. Speaking about investing, actually, in one of the previous episodes. I was telling everyone about art investing and how it's oh, yeah? got the best returns these days. I actually decided to literally put my money where my mouth is and start start to become an art dealer. 
Wow, a dealer. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they called. I googled oh, yeah. it. So I bought my first painting. Yeah. Of uh, trade me for what I think is a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> is that where the art dealers go? No, no, that's where the the savvy <laughs> the savvy ones go. It's quite cool though, man. It's um, a nice looking piece you've got hanging up on your wall here. Yeah, Dick Frizzell. So the interesting thing about Dick Frizzell is he's probably New Zealand's most controversial artist. He did the Mickey to Tiki. Ah, piece. cool. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. So um, he does all that sort of pop arty stuff and prints. But what's made him interesting is with the PC culture and all the appropriation of Māori symbols and stuff, the guy's turned, you know, he's got all these prints that have just sparked into controversy. Because is he Māori or no? No, he's white as fuck. (laughs) But he's also... Oh, wow, okay. I can see the controversy there. (laughs) (laughs) But he's also 77, so, you know, Mm. good good time to buy. (laughs) Yeah, so what's what's the theory? So that if he, I mean, gets so run over, prices go up when uh, demand outstrips supply. So is the expectation that one when he gets run over, <laughs> that demand stops? Oh, sorry, supply stops while demand keeps going up. Yeah, so that's exactly. That's how, how you make your return. Pretty much. So I should expect to see this on Trade Me in ten years' time. For no, four times the price. No, I'm trying to. It's gonna be my new project, and people yeah. in the podcast can follow on. And yeah. I want to see how much money I make or lose. Probably lose. Yeah. Because I have no idea what the value <laughs> of an artwork is. Eh? But it's oh, all good. about diversifying, really. Yeah. yeah. So okay. So you've got shares. You've got a painting. <laughs> <laughs> What's the other diversification? Uh, where's the Bitcoin? Where's the where's the cryptocurrency? Gold? Oh, speaking of which, you were quite... When the world plunged into disarray, uh, I remember at the time you were telling me, switch to gold, switch to Bitcoin, and you were right, weren't you? Well, I mean, there was a, a period of time where it kind of... Yeah, the, the theory kind of came true. I think um, gold in particular, before like the um, central bank... Uh, stimulus that kind of came into the market the gold price went up which is pretty cool um and it was something i had kind of hoped would have happened with the with the massive sell-off but um yeah it's interesting that it's it's hard though because there's just so many other factors that are in play you know there's so much volatility now like you look at the u.s and they've got this election coming up which is like causing all sorts of chaos like donald trump sends out one tweet and the stock market rises 4% and then he sends out another tweet and it drops, you know, 6%. And like 6% doesn't sound like much, but it's, you know, Huge. trillions it's, of dollars. Yeah. Exactly. And and that's the powerful thing that his Twitter post is making or stripping away billions and billions of dollars. Yeah. Just off this guy's That's why I don't understand he's in, why he would be in $400 million of debt. Is he in $400 million of debt? Yeah, he, he personally owes $400 million to someone. We don't know who it is. That's that's crazy. Like, the financial position that he's in is just nuts. Is it not a good position? Well, I don't know what it would be like owing someone $400 million, <laughs> but I can't imagine it would be good. <laughs> nah, not good at all. Talking about that New Zealand economy, we talked about that V-shape recovery there's been so much talk about uh, another recession coming 
because originally we were supposed to go into a recession. Yep. We've bounced back. We're not in a recession. Are we going to have another recession next year? So, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, to your point, economies are supposed to have recessions. It's just a natural part of a cycle. There's going to be a boom, a bust, a recession, and then a boom again. And the, the idea is that companies that survive the recession are better, bigger, stronger. And then when they go hit those good times again, you know, they're in an even better position. But the challenging thing is that central banks are kind of in place to or essentially negate a recession. So when they see a big correction coming, they pump money into the markets. So they have a lot of financial tools they can use, like lowering, lowering interest the, rate. Yeah, the OCR, which then impacts the interest rate, which impacts the level of spending and refinancing. So there's all these tools. Whether or not I think a recession is a good thing, I mean, it's probably a good thing from an economy. It's probably a bad thing from a personal level because you know people get impacted lose their jobs that's what i wanted to bring up because there's this theory out there and i'm sort of thinking about it and sort of think it might be true you're saying that these central banks new zealand's reserve bank have refused to let anyone go from their workplace to to do anything like Mm. we are throwing so much money at this thing not to let anyone use this job Mm. But one of the ideas are recessions are actually a healthy part of any economy. So we've been in growth for the last 11 years. And what happens when you grow is that companies get fat. Mm. So essentially a recession comes along to cut the fat. And it's a really important part of the economy because you need the unsuccessful businesses to fail and people to get made redundant so people can go upskill and also get go reemployed and in businesses that are actually going to grow and provide. So there's this real weird disconnect where no one's allowing a recession to happen. Yeah. But I think, um, I think it's kind of interesting that you're talking about this because on the way here I overheard on the radio they were saying that the warehouse group had reported a net profit of $30 million. But then they also took the government wage subsidy of a value of like $40 million. So they were saying, you know, if they hadn't taken the wage subsidy, then they would have maybe have broken even. So to your point, you're like, well, maybe a recession is a good thing because it would make a company like that a bit more streamlined. But the interesting thing for the warehouse group is they've used that opportunity to streamline. So they've, you know, laid a lot of stuff off. Yeah, they've restructured themselves so they've kind of got the best of both worlds they've got the benefit of the free money the streamlining but then they've also had like a direct transfer of wealth from the taxpayer you and me to the shareholder because we've essentially given given that money i mean to the business's credit they did everything they were entitled to do you had to show you know a 30 percent decline in revenue which they probably would have because of the lockdown. And then they also kept those people employed, which is what the the whole idea of the scheme was, that, so that companies weren't just firing people or laying them off. People were still getting money into the bank account. But all this hasn't fallen on businesses. It's fallen on me and you, and that's what's interesting. New Zealand's a really interesting case example because this is probably getting a bit technical, but... One of the safety nets of a country is how much debt we have to our GDP. And New Zealand's actually got the 17th lowest in the world. I double-checked today. <laughs> but um, Bit of research. we only have 20% debt to our GDP. 
and you got places like the UK, it's up at 80%. Mm. So as a country, we hold little debt and just giving this business support and stuff, it's going to push it up to 50% essentially. But is that a misallocation of of money you know yeah i mean could that not be spent on infrastructure like where we have this amazing opportunity to restructure our country like covid's been a massive wake up right Mm. restructure everything but like you look at labor and national and there's no vision Mm. you know there's no big idea Mm. popping out like what's the big punch from either party this election yeah, none that I can see. Like, a, yeah, to me, like, yeah, I mean, kind of chatted about it earlier. It's like it almost becomes like a a game of personality. Like, mm. as a voter, I voted today. I don't think I voted specifically for one policy that either party came out with. It just came down to who I thought would do a better job of leading, which is like a bit more of a personality vote than it is like a policy vote, which is... yeah. But the problem I have with that is, especially in New Zealand, and they're talking about it now, we have a three-year term. Um, So basically, you get in, you get established for a year, you do your policies for a year, and then it's campaign year. Yeah. So we're really short-sighted as a country in terms of vision. Yeah. And that's what sort of gets me, because I haven't heard any politician think of something big for a long, long time. Mm. It's just little ones, you know? No one comes in and flips the table. No one does anything out of the box. And that's like an interesting thing that I've thought about quite a bit, actually, around politicians. And it's like, would you ever become a politician yourself? Or Yeah. Or could you? (laughs) Or could you, though? Like, I think the politicians that we see in power now, like Jacinda, you know, even like, who's your MP at the moment? Oh, I guess it's David Seymour. (laughs) Yeah, David (laughs) Seymour is not a good example. So these are people who are career politicians, you know. They've never spent a day working in a business. They've never spent a day working as an ordinary person. So, you know, they're towing political lines that they've probably heard their whole lives or whole professional lives, but they're not coming in with that big game-changing idea. But I feel like maybe it's just with our generation with Facebook and all that sort of stuff, like if someone from our generation was like, okay, I'm going to step up from doing my current job into public life, you're just going to get slammed with all these Facebook photos of you drunk and like, oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's just so much dirt now that if you're like a career politician, you're sweet because you've lived your whole life protecting yourself from that. But if you're a regular Joe, you know, there's there's stuff out there on you. Oh, yeah. The Crusher Collins has one photo with her holding a gun and I've seen it 200 times like it's a handgun and she looks like she's having a good time. And it's real interesting you talk about this career politician because it's right, like Jerry Brownlee, st- dudes like that. Like I think he was a woodwork teacher, and now yeah. he's been in twenty years or something. Yeah, it's like it's, like with, like with me, like there's they're a, so detached from that public, eh? Yeah, like for me, like, there's a picture of me in Cambodia with a rocket propelled grenade launcher. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I've got a big smile on my face. That? Yeah, and I'm I've got jandals on. What happened when you shot the RPG? I misfired the first time. That sounds very dangerous. <laughs> so it was like three, two, one, and then just empty click. I was expecting this big recoil, <laughs> but I got an empty click, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And then he he shooed me away, and then he tampered with it a little bit and waved me back. This is a live grenade that gets propelled. <laughs> yeah. Wait, continue. And then he waved me back, and then he was like, three, two, one, and then it it, uh, it connected, and then you see this little 
grenade go flying into the bush and then it explodes. Well, wow. how yeah. big was the explosion? It wasn't very like you know you see movies and you see like RPG an, <laughs> yeah you see an explosion it's like a mushroom cloud. <laughs> this is just like a little bit of steam and and I guess it's I fired more shrapnel, into shrapnel right yeah. like you don't want fire you want shrapnel yeah yeah you know you want to kill people well that's it I think the whole idea with it is it goes into a tank and then once it's inside a tank it so, it just spreads the shrapnel yeah. around so I wasn't shooting a tank I was just shooting into a hillside. <laughs> yeah, I did hear a rumor about that place in Cambodia that if you pay 600 USD, you can shoot a cow. Is that correct? I didn't see any cows. <laughs> Which could be a good or a bad thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I went at the end of the season. Yeah. Oi, just quickly though, talking about those career politicians, I heard something that blew my mind is the average politician in parliament has owns three houses. Wow. So the issue in New Zealand right now is wealth inequality, which breaks down to the fact that our generation doesn't own houses. So that's why we're all investing. And these policymakers all own houses. Yeah. So it's almost like you could almost class the people who own a house these days as an elite, you know. If you make 10% return, you're making 100000 a year. Mm. So you get these people, are they going to bring in policy that goes against their best interest yeah i, I mean and that's I, a, I felt like that that really broke it down like we're run by house owners but half the population doesn't own a house mm. but yeah it's an interesting point like you haven't really given it too much thought but yes yeah, it's, it's not great that that you know there's a lot of potential self-interest if, across every party that, yeah and is that the average number of homes yeah so three. there's probably some ballers in there yeah there's a like lot of people homes. with like 10 to 20 john wow. key what did he sell his house for i think 20 mil oh, yeah. and he, i think he built his own place on the old tennis court and then he helped his son buy a place in mount talbot so the ex-prime minister bought a house for his son yeah. Which that some would not have been able to afford without daddy. Yeah. So what happens if you don't have daddy? Yeah, that's that's the thing. That's the reality that we're all living and in. I, that's why I'd love to get John Key on. <laughs> I'd love to hear that chat. Yeah, and I just want to ask him that question. John, like, do you have a twitch in your mind when you bought something you know that was actually unattainable if you weren't in the frame? Yeah. You know? I could have worded that better, but it would be quite punchy. But, but for John, like he, he wouldn't look at you as his um, base, right? He'd look at probably your parents or like the the boomer generation as his base, where they've done really well. You know, like I'm currently looking at buying a house at the moment and kind of doing a lot of research on it. And like some of these homes are going for double what they were originally bought for sort of 10 years ago mm. so you know if you're his base and you're seeing these property prices get to the point where you need to have a millionaire daddy to <laughs> i love that word daddy eh? yeah. <laughs> to help you into that home they're like oh that's all good well you know i'm the one that's probably selling it to daddy so i'm doing good <laughs> oh, but the crazy, problem is man. like a lot and of people were buying and selling in the, in, in the same market so Oh, that ladder just gets higher. Yeah, that's it. Like, unless you're selling and then moving to the provinces or selling and then, I don't know, renting or whatever or downsizing, you're not at any sort of real benefit until sort of you're in your twilight years. Or you're, you're downside. But that's one of the reasons why, 
you know, those boomers, how we're talking about how much debt they take on. We can't do that because we don't own a house. But if your house has gone up $100,000 each year, you can remortgage it Mm. and get $100,000 from the bank, essentially, which is more debt that you can do on the renovations, on the new car. So... Second house? It's Yes. Rental property. Yeah. Yeah. Get up to three. Yeah. There's a lot of people in parliament with over 10. Like that's What's a the crusher on? I should I should look that up. Yeah, we should Google that. Into yeah. the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a valid point. And I, it's interesting what you're saying about the debt as well because I don't know if you've gone through the, the process of getting pre-approval on a loan, but they essentially tell you that you need to get rid of any credit card debt. So you don't even have that option to sort of leverage yourself up. Oh, okay, so you can't even leverage. Well, you don't even have the option of going into that sort of boomer debt that you were speaking of, you know, with yeah. credit cards and stuff like that. But the saving grace for our generation essentially is what's happened in, say, these uh, neighborhoods is the not-in-my-backyard philosophy. So we have such a housing shortages because all these neighborhoods decided we can build houses but not on my street. Mm. And I actually went to... Uh, sort of a hearing, and this is the problem, all the red tape. Um, they wanted to build an apartment block in the Mount Eden village, and then it was me, my mum, and about 80 people in their 60s, all protesting, and these property developers showed up, and it was like, boo! Not in my backyard! Exactly, and they cancelled the project, because... Wow. That generation has been able to justify that. And I remember being there. I was like 12 and I'm like, yeah, we did a good thing today. Mm. But essentially what's happened, consents got down to about 12,000 a month. Now they're reaching back up to 40,000. So that's actually the real reason we have such a a shortage of housing. Mm. But the difference with us is we're all going to go into townhouses well, that's it. And like from living in Sydney where like people live in terraced houses, that's just like part of life. And, you know, these terraced houses in certain suburbs like Paddington go for like $2.5 million. Yeah. But for some reason, Kiwis have this idea in their head that they need to have a quarter acre section with like a, you know, space down the side of the house where you keep your bins and then, you know, you have your own little area. This is twice as wide as a cricket. Yeah, yeah, patch, you yeah know? exactly. So we've got this like supposed luxury of space but then you look at actually the greater auckland region there's not a ton of space there like it's we're essentially we're one of the least... restricted on either side by an o- like two oceans <laughs> exactly and we're actually one of the least dense cities in the world because like you said everyone's got a backyard where they go out once a month and my dad's got a backyard and i could count on two hands how many times he goes out there in the summer you yeah, know you just got to mow it that's That's just there to be mowed driver like he doesn't (laughs) kick a soccer ball out there yeah but they want the space right they don't want like a neighbor being right there basically we're all going to be living in townhouses yeah which i i don't particularly have an issue with like actually man yeah you know what is really interesting i don't have an issue with it and the reason why I don't think any of the millennials have issues with it is our lifestyles are different from our parents. Yep. You know, we want to lock and leave. We don't want to be mowing the lawns. And my dad can spend about a day in the garden <laughs> each weekend, you know? With like no major difference to, to how it normally looks, right? Oh, totally. And <laughs> Just maintaining it. And that's the thing. They reckon, you know, 
uh, one of my old bosses uh, used to say that play those big fillers say in Remuera or Greyland now, you're spending 2 to 4% on maintenance each year. Yeah. So you want to do a renovation on a villa? My next door neighbor did one and it cost him $900,000. That's it. You've got to repile it. You've got to change things out. You've got to get a new roof. And this is all stuff that's 110 years old. <laughs> so A brand new townhouse doesn't sound so bad. No, nah, they're warm. They're double insulated. Yeah. And I think our generation, you know, is mm. okay with that. Not only okay, we like a lot more work-life balance, I think. We yeah. want to lock and leave. and We don't want to pump our whole life into a house mm. because that previous generation really did. Well, and, and I think that's... Yeah, that's going to be the interesting thing too, right? With like um, housing unaffordability at the point it is. It's like, yeah, you can, if you wanted to buy that villa in Ponsonby or in Greyland or Remuera or whatever, you're looking at like $2.5, $3 million. So on a, you know, 30 year mortgage with like a 20% deposit, you know, you're going to be servicing that debt your entire life until. Yeah, how pretty does that villa look when you add all that up? <laughs> yeah. The 50 grand of main t- My dad refused to buy another villa because it was just constant, you know? That's it. They look cool, though. They, oh, man, they're beautiful, <laughs> yeah. you know? But the cold in winter and, yeah, to your point, like, you need to spend a lot of money maintaining them, otherwise they do literally start falling apart. <laughs> yeah, it's real interesting. My family home... Uh, we bought quite cheap, and we don't own it anymore, but it recently sold for $3 million. <laughs> yeah. So for me to get back into my old family home, because yeah. the whole idea of like your parents, they want you to be better off than them. Yeah, no, not this For student. me to get into my <laughs> own family home, I'm going to have to find $3 million, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, So yeah. we're probably the first generation that might not be better off. Yeah, probably. And I, I feel like... Um, yeah, the generation below us have it probably maybe even, even worse. worse, unfortunately. Because they but, got all the jobs, all the entry-level jobs disappearing. Yeah, that's it. Coming out into a COVID world, they're the ones who have been pumped by it. Yeah, we've had the opportunity to travel and see the world. But I'm, I'm sure the vaccine will, you know, a va- some sort of vaccine will come out soon. We'll kind of get a control of it. But. Yeah. Just questions to end. What's your meaning in life? You don't oh. have to answer them. No, no, I like that. I think my meaning in life has definitely changed since I've had my little baby, little baby Jackson. Nice. It's pretty cool being a dad. That's definitely given me greater meaning in life, I suppose. In and, what way? And, and, and to your point, like you want them to have a better life than what you've had. So I think that's kind of the, the driver for me is like making sure that, you know, he's going to have like an awesome future. Wow. You know, that ties back into the other podcast about that knowledge shift and creating better futures. So (laughs) it's interesting to see you in your sense that your almost biological reaction. Yeah. You know, you probably weren't thinking about humanity when you think about making a better future for your son. Mm. No, that's really cool, man. Well, as always, Mark, you're a great guest to have on, the business guru. I'm glad to be on the journey with you, Matt. So I look forward to having you back next time yeah. in a Joe Rogan <laughs> rip, rip, replica. <laughs> yes, and let's catch up and see how our second recession is going. <laughs> Sounds good, Matt. Hopefully we're both employed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right.
Thanks everyone for listening in this week. Like I said, if you want to follow the new Instagram, I'll be looking to post some cool content on there. It's at the big picture NZ. Or if you want to email us in ideas, questions, anything, guests, suggestions, just email it to contact.thebigpicturenz at gmail.com. And I look forward to speaking to you guys very soon. That was The Big Picture. Hit the subscribe and share the word.